Okay, so like the Buckeyes lost last night. Um, I don't know if any of you ever saw that. And I, so I have, a, I have a daughter, Hannah, just a delightful girl. She, she came over last night. I don't know if she knew that my team was going to lose. Or, and she made Buckeyes, um, which were awesome. And uh, every time Clemson scored, I ate one. So, I'm not going to eat. Need to eat for a while. <laughs> not going to need to eat for a while. Um, and then she did something kind of cute. The, the Buckeyes weren't going to come back. They were just getting shelled really bad. Um, and uh, Hannah doesn't care a thing about football. She, and she's married to a Michigan fan, and he, and um, Dale and and. Uh, and Dale was being nice. He, he was over and he was pretending to root for the Buckeyes, which was really cute because I pretended to root for the other team earlier. <laughs> and he was being gracious, you know. And, and then toward the end when there was just totally no way the Buckeyes could come back, Hannah started rooting for him. You know, God, I think they can do this, you know. And, and I went to bed and I thought, there's only one reason in the world she did that is because of pity for her dad. She just felt bad for me. It's so sweet to have a daughter like that, and uh, and uh, maybe you maybe you have a daughter. You know what I'm talking about? Hannah one time was making a basket when Daniel was in college, and she was making this care basket box. And she was just stuffing it full of stuff, all kinds of really cool things. And I said, "What's that?" And she said, "Well, I'm just going to send this box to Daniel, and it's just got all kinds of goodies, and you know, popcorn and coffee and all kinds of things, and send it off to him." Every once in a while, when I speak out, I will get up to my hotel room, and they will have a basket. As a matter of fact, when I came here to candidate, you all had a basket in our room. It was full of all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, there was a there was a Ohio State football, and there was a, another football in there too for for the other team, and uh, and there were all kinds of goodies. And every once in a while, when I speak out, you know, somebody who knows ahead of time what I like, you know, they'll put like grape juice in there. One time, I spoke at a conference and I used an illustration about gummy bears and the next time I came back the basket in my room had a bag of gummy bears in it which I don't know if you know this but if you lick them and you throw them they stick to things (laughs) so try that sometime I said that at this conference I was speaking at and the next time I saw my car I had a white Volvo at the time it had five or six hundred gummy bears stuck to it which was really hard to get clean Anyway, I feel a little bit like, and when we come up to the book of Ephesians, I know you thought, where is he going with this? Like, really? Yeah. (laughs) But when you come to the book of Ephesians, it is absolutely full of goodies. I mean, full of good stuff. It's almost like somebody knew you ahead of time and put all the stuff in there that you would crave and all the stuff in there that you would need. It's in there. Let me just some some examples. You know, all of us probably struggle with our identity. Who am I anyway? People sometimes tell me who I am, and it's not very nice. But God says who I am in Ephesians, and it's nice. There are clear statements in Ephesians about the sovereignty of God and election. And if you're foggy about that, we're going to clear that up really soon. There's, um, there are, there's uh, an explanation in Ephesians about what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit as a seal. What is that? It's explained in Ephesians. 
There are just ringing, beautiful statements about justification by faith throughout Ephesians. There are clear appeals to holy living in Ephesians. There's practical help about specifically how to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have your life transformed. There's an extended and useful passage in Ephesians on marriage. There's help for those of us who are parents. There's how to prosper when you're working under authority, even unsympathetic authorities. All this is in the goodie basket that we call Ephesians. There's teaching on spiritual warfare, which you're in, whether you know it or not. Some of the richest prayers as examples of prayer in the Bible are in Ephesians. The first three chapters are almost really one extended, lyrical, poetic prayer. We're going to talk about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There's even a little caution about about um, drunkenness, and we'll talk a little bit about that. What is God doing in heaven and on earth today? What is God doing? Remember a couple weeks ago when we said God's doing something? We don't always know what he's doing, but he's doing something. As had somebody tell me that this week. They, they heard my message, and then they called me to encourage me, and they said, God is doing something. We don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. Well, I will tell you that Ephesians tells us what God is doing in heaven and on earth. It really does. And it tells us where we fit into what God is doing in heaven and on earth. And it tells us the place of the church. And sometimes, let's be honest, do you ever get a little bit discouraged about the modern church? Don't want to talk about it? You ever been disappointed by church or church people? Well, the Bible in the book of Ephesians teaches real clearly about how we should look at the church. And how we should feel about the church. It's very, very clear. And the church's place in the plan of God. And, and then, and the last thing I kind of want to emphasize is this. The, the book of Ephesians gives us tremendous hope. Because it tells us how to change. And, and promises that we can change. That we can inside out be transformed. And let's be honest. Sometimes it's just frustrating. You believe people don't change and you're not going to change. I mean, how many of you have had New Year's resolutions that you kept? That's what I thought. None of you raised your hands. Because I was really quick there, yeah. Because you make resolutions, but it's really hard to change. It's, it's like it almost takes a, a miracle. But the Bible in the book of Ephesians tells us how to change. And, and it gives us a promise that we can not only just like make little you know, changes, but that we can be transformed like spiritually, inside out, spiritually changed. Now, I don't want you to have any misconceptions. I am not going to lecture you. I am not going to lecture you. It's not the pastor's job to lecture his way through books of the Bible. It's the pastor's job to herald the word of God. The Bible where it says preach the word, you know that passage, be instant, in season, out of Use the Caruso word. It means be a herald, be a crier. In other words, we are not going to give you lectures. And here's one of the reasons why. Because some of us, we're going to hear lectures and then we're going to go out a little proud because we know more about the Bible than somebody else. And that's not the purpose of preaching in the New Testament church. And sometimes we're going to take a little bit of lecture, a little bit of lecture about, you know, I know more about Ephesians now and the background of Ephesians and the argument of Ephesians and the, and the, the original languages of Ephesians. And now I have this knowledge and it makes me feel better. It's kind of therapeutic, but I haven't really changed. I haven't really had my life transformed. I'm no more like Jesus than the one I came in. We're not going to do that. We're going to get up in your business. We are not going to lecture our way through Ephesians. We are going to preach our way through Ephesians. We're not going to give you a series of, 
just teachings that are like lectures. We're actually going to worship together. Do you realize when we came into the house today and we started greeting one another, our, our worship began. Actually, when you started getting ready, when you made plans to come, you were starting to worship. And when we sang, we were worshiping in song. And when we were gave, we were worshiping with our gifts. And now that we're preaching, we're supposed to be worshiping as we listen or as we preach. This is a part of our worship. It's part of our putting our face in the, uh, on the ground before God and saying, God, I am living in serious obedience to you. So we are not going to lecture our way through Ephesians. If you're planning that, you're, you're going to be disappointed. The scriptures talk about the priority of love in another of Paul's epistles in 1 Corinthians. The scriptures talk about the fact that, there, that knowledge without love, knowledge just puffs up doesn't grow you. In other words, you can get more knowledge about Ephesians and not change a bit. You can get more knowledge about Ephesians and actually be no more like Jesus than you were when you came in. You can actually get more knowledge about Ephesians and go out of here worse than you came in, proud and arrogant and puffed up. And we don't want that because the world has seen enough of an arrogant, proud, puffed up, unrepentant church. What the church needs to see, what the world needs to see, is a church that looks like Jesus. And that's not going to be happening if we just have more knowledge in our brains. That's only going to happen if we worship our way through the book of God and we let God do a work in us that's a transforming work that changes us. So that's our plan. Someone said um, that there's going to be no barf gabble. No barf gabble. The guy described barf gabble as the kind of talk that's just religious jargon, like throwing up religious jargon, barf gabble. We don't want to do that. What we want to do here is what one expositor calls, um, he calls it egg, egg, uh, expository exaltation. John Piper, he was a seminary professor. And he was a good seminary professor. And he studied in, in Germany and he's got his doctorate and he was very capable. And he began to study the Bible and began to teach the Bible. And as he began to study the Bible and as he began to teach the Bible, there were parts of the Bible that captured his worship. And when his worship was captured, he decided there's a legitimate place for teachers, but he wasn't going to be one of them. He was going to go be a pastor teacher. He was going to go be a herald of the truth of the Bible. And so he took a church... And you, and you probably know the story about how God has used this guy. But here's what it says. Here's what he says about that. He says, I call this heralding exaltation. Preaching is a public exaltation over the truth that it brings. Not disinterested, not cool, not neutral. It's not mere explanation. It's manifestly and it is contagiously passionate. I am enthralled, he quotes, Quoting Piper, I'm enthralled by the reality of God and the power of his word to create authentic people. Now, see, that's the point, guys. Listen, it's not good enough for us to say, I know Ephesians, or I, I have knowledge about the Bible. If we're not authentic people, if we're not authentic people of God, who really are holy, who really do love, who really are sincerely growing, who really are humble and willing to admit our sins, then what good is it going to be for us to have more knowledge in our head? So he says this, he says, it's not disinterested preaching. This kind of preaching is not cool or neutral or dispassionate. It's not just explanation. It is manifestly, contagiously passionate. He says, I'm enthralled by the reality of God, the power of his word to create authentic people. To, in effect, the Lord was saying to me, and he says again, I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not be pondered. I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty 
is not simply to be scrutinized, it is to be heralded. It's not grist for the mill of controversy, it's gospel for sinners who know their only hope is in the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious will. In this, he was specifically talking about how he was studying in Romans chapter 9, another passage about the sovereignty of God. This one here in Ephesians and the whole argument of Ephesians uh, is, is rich with teaching on the sovereignty of God. He was talking about Romans chapter 9 and how when he was captured by just that one of the many doctrines, that one doctrine, he decided, I'm going to preach this. I'm not just going to lecture about this so that people will be authentic believers. So let me ask you, listen to me now. Don't ask yourself the question, who on my pew needs to change? Ask yourself the question, how do I need to change? Hey, it's a new year, it's a new beginning. What needs to change about you? Some of you kind of think, well, I'm it's pretty good. I don't think, okay, I have a suggestion for you then. What you need to change is, you need to change what you believe about not needing to change. Because my friend, we all need to change. Am I right about that? Am I right? And so what you want to ask yourself the question is, God, if it's possible for me to be transformed into your likeness, what needs to change? What needs to change in my life? That's the question you should be asking, not what needs to change in other people's lives, but what needs to change in my life. What is it that if it was changed would bring God great glory? What is it in your life that if it was changed would bring you great joy and satisfaction in God? Well, we have this letter of Ephesians before us. And you know this. If any of you that have read the letter uh, to the Ephesian church, and if you have studied this, you know that there are six chapters and that everybody kind of recognizes the first three chapters and the last three chapters are, are different. That the first three chapters really don't contain commands in them, but they just kind of exalt in what's true about you. And the last three chapters take a sharp corner and begin to make demands on us. You know, somebody says the first part is doctrine and the second part is duty. You've heard that before. Uh, the first part is our position in Christ and the second part is our practice. You've, you've probably heard that before. Our privileges in the first part and our responsibilities in the second part. The whole point is that it's obvious from anybody just picking up the Bible and reading Ephesians that God has given us his great riches so that we will be different people than we were, so that we'll change, so that we'll be transformed. And and, uh, the the letter to the Ephesians is obviously, it's an epistle, it's a letter written by Paul, who was a, Paul the apostle, was converted on the road to Damascus after he opposed the Lord, and it was written about A.D. 61 or 62 when, when Paul was a prisoner in Rome, and he'd written this letter to the church in Ephesus that he had some history with. If you want to do a little bit of collateral reading, you, you probably ought to. You ought to grab your Bible this afternoon and read Acts 18 and 19, and you'll see some of the rich and variegated, colorful characters in the church in, uh, in Ephesus. Paul's initial ministry there was just with 12 men. And then later on when he came back, there was a growing group, uh, and God had done a remarkable thing. And you remember in Acts chapter 19, the people that were worshiping demons, and there's this dark, the dark arts and all of that, and Ephesus was a main headquarters for that, if you will, that people had actually kind of burned their idols and their, and their, and their things. And, that, that, and the, the Bible even talks about how much money that they gave up, and, they, and, and God began to do a work, and people's lives were changed, and there were remarkable characters there, Apollos, Priscilla, and a Aquila, and uh, there's much beautiful history there. But the point of it is, Paul now is this the part when he gets toward the end of Acts and it talks about his house arrest. He's in prison and he's writing a letter 
to the church in Ephesus. And most people believe that there are some uh, extant manuscripts, existing manuscript fragments that don't include the name Ephesus. And some have suggested, well, maybe it wasn't to the Ephesians. But others have said, and this is probably true, that this was a circular letter, that it was to the church in Ephesus, but Ephesus was a key church, and it was also circulated to others other churches in Asia. And this is kind of interesting because it doesn't have personal references. It doesn't address specific problems like any one church might have. It's more general. Now, that's one of the things that makes the book of Ephesians a really powerful book for us because of its broad applicability to our lives. So we're going to ask a couple of questions, and that is uh, today, and that is, what is, what in the world is God doing and what should I be doing? And so this is the, the big picture of Ephesians is what we're going to call this message. And we're going to ask these questions, what is God doing and what should I be doing? Now here's a mnemonic device, a memory device. I got this from N.T. Wright. He was lecturing at Wheaton College. And when he, when he used this, I thought, oh my goodness, that's really helpful. So I want you to think, if you could just think of a number 10, you can make your way through the high points of Ephesians. There are six chapters and you could actually go to chapter 1 in verse 10, chapter 2 in verse 10, chapter 3 in verse 10. You get pretty close in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 in verse 10. But there's actually a little twist on that. So if you track with me on this or write this down, or it'll come up on the slides here. And that is, just think of the high points of Ephesians as Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 3.10, and then go 15, 14, 13. 15, 14, 13. It'd be Ephesians 4.15, Ephesians 5.14. Ephesians 6, 13. Did you track with me on that? 15, 14, 13. I'll show you in a minute. It's just a, it's just a memory device in order for you to, to kind of see the high point or get the big picture of Ephesians. I'm a big believer in the big picture. Because what can happen is when you're trying to study a book, if you drill down too deep too fast, then you can come up with all kinds of nonsense that really doesn't fit in the big picture of the book. But if you get the big picture in mind, everything else kind of falls in place. And so what I'm doing today is, is again, we're not giving you a lecture about the history of the Ephesian church or Paul or any of that. What we're wanting to do is worship our way through this and want to begin by seeing the big picture and you'll see the practical value of this as it kind of unfolds. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that whole thing about, you know, God is doing something. In, in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul makes really clear what God is doing. And you see it there in chapter 1 and verse 10 immediately. Chapter 1 and verse 10, it says this, as a plan for the fullness of time, it is his plan, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's a critical statement there, and a high point of chapter one in verse chapter one, and that and, and of the whole book is that Paul is saying God's eternal plan is to unite heaven and earth, and for them not to be separate, and for them to be all united under Christ. That's his eternal plan. That's going to happen. That's what chapter one and verse ten says. Our tendency, of course, is to divide you know heaven and earth. Is to, is to see them separately. Well, this is my practical work. And this is what I do. And then there's that, all that heavenly stuff, you know, that maybe someday we'll look into that. But, but, but Paul says this, and he understands. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, no, no, it's all one. And God's eternal purpose is to unite all things under Christ in heaven and on earth. And you're going to see this as a theme that keeps getting repeated, not only in this letter, but it's a theme that's all throughout the New Testament, all the way to the end, heaven and earth 
together. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem is where this ends. That's chapter 1 and verse 10. God's plan is to unite heaven and earth under Christ. Now look in chapter 2 and verse 10. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And of course, obviously, all the surrounding material is rich. But here's what it says in verse 10 of chapter 2. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what you're seeing is this. What is God's plan for the world? It's to unite all things under Christ in heaven and on earth. And you're going to see later on, he's going to unite the Jew and the Gentile. He's going to unite men and women. He's going to unite common men and, you know, slaves and masters and so forth. But the first thing is, he, ha- he wants us to have this, he wants us to, to see that this is the way it really is already in the heavenlies, and he wants that to be true in our lives, and he's going to involve us, he wants to involve us in the process. And then in chapter 2 and verse 10, where it, it says, we are his workmanship, you, you've probably already been taught that the idea there is we're God's work of poetry, we're God's work of art. That, that, and for the purpose, he created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand. In other words, how do we see heaven and earth come together in a practical way? How can we participate in that? What would you say? What would the answer be? Two words. Good works. Good works. You guys are so sharp. You're so sharp. Uh, the Good works. Okay, so J. Don Jennings was a pastor in Ypsilanti that we admired a lot when I was growing up, and he pastored Calvary Baptist there in Ypsilanti, and we'd often speak at a conference, and I remember going to the conference and listening to J. Don Jennings preach, still living, wonderful guy. Um, anyway, my, um, I, I called him on the phone one day, and uh, when I was starting a church in Ohio, and I wanted to talk to him about evangelism. He's a guy that had a great deal of success in evangelism, and he'd influenced a lot of people for the Lord, led a lot of people to the Lord. And there was a time in evangelism in a really kind of Christianized America where you could often just kind of give people a basic little uh, outline of the gospel and many times people would, would believe. And so what, it became really common for people just to go and just kind of really quickly pigeonhole people and, and, and give them a quick sales pitch for Jesus. But, you know, God uses that craziness and, and people get saved. And so if it works for you a few times, then you work it, you know, you keep after that. But then... In, a, in the first century, it wasn't so much that way because people didn't have that Christian background, that Christian understanding. And God's plan really included people doing good works and embedding the truth in kindness and good works. And when I called Don Jennings and I asked him about that, I said to him, you know, it seems to me like in our time, people aren't as receptive, they're not as open to just a quick gospel appeal, but the gospel grows better like in the soil of good works. Do you think it's that way now? And he goes, I think it's really always been true from the beginning. So in a pre-Christian world, God intended for us to embed the truth of the gospel in a lot of good works. And in a post-Christian world like the one we're living in now, God intends for us to embed the truth of the gospel in a lot of good works. And that's why we, we use our, our little evangelistic strategy is pray what? Love. That's come grow service. That evangelistic is the discipleship strategy. But the evangelistic strategy to get them to the discipleship is pray, 
love, invite, and gospel conversation. We say that often. The love piece is the good works part. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. How can we make heaven and earth come together? Christians doing good works in Christ's name and embedding the truth of the gospel in the soil of good works. And you guys know that's true. When you really love somebody, that's when the fireworks start going off. When you just talk, people are sick of talk. People here talk all the time. How many of you like hang up on telemarketers? How many of you are telemarketers? <laughs> how many of you hang up on telemarketers? Since there are none of them here. Second they call me, I'm like, goodbye. I'm not going to burn my cell phone minutes trying to sell me something. You're a recording. Your call is important to us. If your call is important to us, why is this a recording? Why don't you put a real person on an important call? My little pet peeve there. Yeah. Yeah, words. Words without deeds are actually, it's where we're worse off than when we began. And Christians are famous for talk, but they're not so famous for good works. If you want heaven and earth to come together, then you embed the gospel in in genuine love, in genuine good works, in the simplest deeds. And this is how you can participate in what God is doing, bringing heaven and earth together, which is already true in the heavenlies. It's already true in the spiritual. Okay, now where am I going next? 310. You guys are really sharp. I knew you were. 310. So you look in verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 10, and you see the highlight there. Now, what, you're, what we're going to see here is that, okay, what is God doing? God is bringing heaven and earth together. He's done it in the heavenlies. He wants to do it here. How is he doing it? He's using Christians that are doing good works and giving the gospel. And he empowers the church to do this for his glory and for our enduring good. good. He uses the church. The church is God's plan for our time. Now, if you're like I am, every once in a while you get a little bit discouraged with this idea. You think, really? Seriously? The church? Are you kidding with me right now? Have you seen some of the crazy harebrained things church people do? Do you ever think that way? Am I the only one who ever thinks this? Am I alone? I guarantee you I'm not alone. Listen to the culture. Listen to people. The disappointment, the heartache, the pain, the suffering. And a lot of times... At the hands of church people. A church is often its own worst enemy. And so it's really easy for us sometimes to go, you know what? There must be another way than church. There's got to be a better method than church. I, I don't, I, you know, sometimes people say, I'm checking out, man. I love Jesus, but I'm just checking out at church. Because I've had it with what church people do to me. I've had it with the hurt. I've had it with the backbiting. I've had it with the gossip. I've had it with the fake. I've had it with the, with the, the charlatan talk that's on the outside. It doesn't, that doesn't really match a, a genuine life inside. I don't want to be around that anymore. You hear that because a lot of times that's really true. Jesus was really hard on this. He went after Pharisees. He drove them out. The, the, the false pseudo-piety. What, but, but, God's plan is still the church. Now listen to what it says in chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We don't think much about this, but the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We're talking about angels and fallen angels, right? demonic and as angels and demons that are wrestling for the allegiance of the souls of men. Why, it's hard when you decide to get baptized and everything kind of breaks loose weird in your house. When you decide that you're going to walk with the Lord and all kinds of opposition comes. It, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is spiritual warfare. 
And, and so they're in the, God wants us to declare truth into the heavenly places where demons and angels are. And he wants us to say into the heavenlies, God owns all of this. It belongs to him. He's the king. He's the Lord. He is going to be victorious over all. And, 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 in chapter, and it often says that in chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And one of the most beautiful parts of Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21. And look what it says about the church. Ephesians three twenty one. it says this in verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That ought to encourage you. It encourages me because if it was just me, I think I might sometimes give up on the church. But God says, don't give up on the church because I church is my method. Church is where I will manifest my glory. Church is where I'm going to do my business. I'm going to use the 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 hard scrabble, broken, start, stop, pass, fail. Human beings that grow slow and make mistakes, they're my people, they're my church, and I'm going to use them. So this is just, what is God doing? He's uniting heaven and earth. He's done it in the, in the heavenlies. He's going to do it practically. And, and where do we fit in? By, by giving, embedding the gospel in good works, he wants to make us a part of that. And how does that work? It works by God getting glory through the church. Since these things are true then, what should we be doing? That's the next question. What should we be doing? In chapter 1 and verse 10, chapter 2 and verse 10, go to the next slide, chapter 3 and verse 10, and then go to chapter 4 and verse 15, we're to use our God-given gifts to unite the body for this task. We're to use our God-given gifts. In other words, chapter uh, 4 in, in, in chapter in verse 10 and up through there, it's talking about the gifts that we've been given and especially a big theme in Ephesians, and it was important at the time in particular, is that the Jews would recognize that the Gentiles were a genuine part of the body, and they would be treated right. There was prejudice and misunderstanding, and there was suspicion. And a major theme here is that God says the point of God calling the, the, the nation of Israel is so that they could be a light to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles could come to faith and could unite all things under Christ, Jews and Gentiles. And that's just still extremely practical for us to understand that God is always and ever uniting things under Christ. And we in our flesh are always and ever dividing things because of our flesh and because of our indwelling sin. And God is always and ever uniting all things under Christ. That's what he says here. So what should we do? We should use our gifts. God gives us different gifts to unite the body. Everybody's in a different place. Everybody's in a different time. Everybody has a different circle of influence. Everyone is uniquely gifted, and you want to believe that God has given gifts. So you'll see this in chapter 4. You could say it kind of starts in, in verse 10, really, but, but the emphasis there in verse 14. I'm going to read verse 11. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried up by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Do you catch this language? It's like it's almost as if God is saying it's possible for us to really mature and grow and to be Christ-like. He is expecting it of us. He's empowering us to do it. So I just need to get cracking, amen? Amen? Like, when is that going to happen? What year are you going to start doing that, right? Oh, I'm going to get to it. Really? Because we're getting wrinkly, and we're losing our hearing, and we're losing our teeth, and we're not much more like Jesus than we were last year, are we? There should be a spirit of holy conviction that falls on God's people at this point, where we say, God, forgive me for the knowledge that I have and how little of it that I actually have applied in my life to have the fragrance of Jesus on my life. We have all the knowledge we need. We don't need any more knowledge. We need some old school obedience. We need some old school humility. We need some old school brokenness. How rare is it? Any pastor will tell you how rare it is for somebody to actually admit that they've sinned. Any wife will tell you how rare it is for a husband to actually say, you know, I was wrong, please forgive me. How, how rare it is for a mom to just say, you know, I sinned against you, I sinned against God, I, I'm grieved and I'm sorry. Humility, brokenness, transformation. We need a whole, we need a revival of that if we're going to be this people that we can be and using our gifts then and having our lives changed. So you go to chapter 5 and verse 14. And what you see there in this whole passage in chapter 5 is talking about walking in love and light in a very dark world that we're supposed to be in contrast to the dark world. And in chapter 4, uh, chapter 5 and verse 14, so move to that. Chapter 5 and verse 14, I want you to notice this. It says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Why does he say that? It's a reference to the resurrection. It's like if Jesus Christ was dead and by the power of God was raised to life, then you can come back to life and you, and you can walk in the light and you can walk in love and your life can be a contrast to the dark world in which you live. You need to manifest resurrection life. So these are like, because of what God says he's doing and, and using our, our good works and using the church, then what should we do? We should use our gifts and we should be being transformed. We should be passionate about changing. I'm tired. I'm so tired of people complaining about changing. Changing should be the thing that we're all about. Change is what Christianity is all about. Change, change, change. More like Jesus, more love, more sincerity, more genuine faith. This is not about, Christianity is not about preserving traditions. Christianity is not about having a little religious club that keeps things the way you want them. That's sin. That's not holiness. That's not godliness. That's sin. When God, when people get a hold of God and the life of God gets in them, they start caring about the perishing world around them. They start caring about people dying of drug abuse all around us. People are, marriages blown apart all around us. Kids are suffering all around us. Kids are suicidal all around us. We do not want to spend our time kind of moving the little chess pieces of our religious club, but to get on fire for God. And begin to be changed and transformed. The thing that we ought to be concentrating on is our very own sanctification. Our very own sanctification. How should I be like Jesus? How can I be more loving? How can I be more sincere in my love? How can I be more genuine in my prayer? 
How can I be more faithful in the heralding of the truth to God? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better what? You say, you making this up? No, it's in Ephesians. It's right there in Ephesians. If these things are true, then you need to be a better dad. Not an angry dad, but you need to be a loving dad, a gentle dad. If these things are true, you don't want to be a hard-nosed, rebellious wife. You want to be a tender-hearted, respectful wife. If these things are true about you and your spirit-filled, you don't want to be a selfish, demanding husband. You want to be a sacrificial husband. That's what Ephesians chapter 5 says. You're in the spiritual warfare. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're a good husband. You're a good wife. You're a good dad. Because the Holy Spirit is working in you, and you're constantly pleading for God to transform you so that your main message in the world is just the transforming value of your life the way people see you. Because you're attractive. Because you're morally and spiritually growing, you're spiritually attractive. Not because you, know, you hate people who are on the other side of the political fence than you. Not because you have all the right you know, things that you got your NRA sticker in the window and you hate homosexuals and you're, you're against abortion and because that's that, those kinds of things, they're not the kind of things that broken, lost people that are dying in this world understand about. They don't understand that stuff. They don't get it. They're on the other side of the fence because they don't have the life of God in them. You get that? But they do understand love. They do understand truth. They do understand sacrifice. They do recognize genuineness when they see it. They just don't see it often enough. We're not going to lecture our way through Ephesians. We're going to worship our way through Ephesians. We're going to humble ourselves in this book and say, God, if this stuff can happen, then let it happen at Evangel. If this stuff can happen, then let it happen in my heart. Let it happen in my life. Let it happen in my family. Let's be broken so that God will do what he promises he will do, and he will use us that we'll be transformed and agents of transformation. And then chapter 6 and verse 13, you'll see that we become a part of the spiritual resistance. We join the spiritual resistance. We become, we recognize that we are in spiritual warfare. There is a real devil and demons, and they are in opposition to the things that are good and that are godly, and we recognize that. Now look in chapter 6. There And you know this, right? The, the, the Christian's armor, the panoply of God. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Take up the armor of God so you can withstand the evil day. And having done all stand, stand firm there for having fastened your feet in the belt of truth. This, Paul understands this. we got to understand this. You're not my enemy, and I'm not your enemy. The enemy wants to destroy us, and he wants to divide us. And he's doing a good job. What we need to do is we need to say, no, it's not going to happen. Not, not in my day. Not in my house. Not in my church. Not on my watch. I'm going to go follow after God. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to go out there on the road where spiritual warfare is happening. I'm going to take the means that I have the panoply of God, the Christian's armor, and I'm going to buck up, have some courage, start to grow, be honest and forthright, and begin to become a genuine Christ follower, not just kind of a lazy pew sitter that's kind of looking around at other people to see if they're ever going to change. <laughs> I uh, will talk before I quit about how not to stink. Show the slide. How not to stink. Boom, right there. See that? 
<laughs> Those are sluggish sometimes. Is it going to advance for us? Move, move beyond that. i got one more slide there. That's what I just said. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. How not to stink. I was trying to think of a really good way of saying this. It sounds kind of funny, and I'm as serious about it as I can possibly be. When I go outside my house, my neighbor, uh, Mr. Welch, he, he burns a fire. He burns hardwoods in his fire. And so when you walk outside in the winter, it's the most fragrant, beautiful smell. Everybody knows, it's like, God, smell that. Isn't that great? And there is, you know, somebody, that's why we had the little trailer with the guy cutting the wood. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But there's this beautiful fragrance that's out in the neighborhood, you know. Now, I walk my dog every day, and that's for a couple of reasons. It's for my health, it's for his health, and that's so that he'll poop in the neighbor's yard and not mine. No, I'm kidding. I pick it up, you know, with my little bag, dutifully. It's a law, you know, and then I throw it away. And, and I always try to drag him so that he'll do his I knew you wanted to know this. That's why I'm sharing. Some of you always like something to criticize. This is it right here. You can do that later. Anyway, so I'm dragging my dog along. I always try to drag him up. <laughs> I'm trying to drag him up next to where I can throw it away so I don't have to carry it that far. And I always feel bad for people with really big dogs because their bag is huge, you know. They're like, I'm like, man, that must be a bummer. I got a little dog with a little bag. People with a big dog and a big bag, I'm just like, man, that just must be rough. Anyway, so I, I take that dog. I try to, try to drag him so the dude's business close to the trash, and I throw it away. And I do that pretty much every day, except every once in a while not. And so then he sometimes will do his business out front. And then every once in a while, somebody will be sitting around the house, and they'll go, what is that stench? And they'll be looking around and go, is that you? Is that you? I'm sure you don't do this in your house. What is that smell? It's disgusting. Lois will sometimes say, let me see your feet. And then you're like, oh, I think I stepped in something. And the whole house smells bad. Listen to me, people. People with a bunch of religious knowledge and a bunch of religious experience who haven't changed They stink. They just plain stink. They're not attractive. They're not compelling. They're not fragrant. They're not attractive. They're repulsive. They smell bad. To the world and to our brothers and sisters who are hurting, they really stink. The more you hurt and the more need you have and the more broken you are when you get around people who are religious but they're not transformed, It's worse than being around somebody who isn't religious at all. Do you see what I'm saying? This is true. Just talk talk to your friends. They'll tell you this is true. It just stinks. I won't tell you about how. We have a plan here to keep you from stinking, okay? Here's what it is. If you say, well, I have a better plan. Okay, fine. Work it, you know. But here it is, okay? There's three things here on our plan. It's very practical. Okay, number one is this, and that is spend time alone in Scripture. What we're going to do here is, as we work our way through Ephesians, we want you to take some notes that we have. Have we passed those out already? We're going to... We're already we take the notes so that you can study ahead of time. And so what are you going to do? Like, think about the chair and the row and the circle. Think about three elements. Instead of just listening to a lecture, we don't want to do that, right? What we want to do is... Through the week, as you're approaching, if you have the ESV Bible, the ESV Bible has broken up the passages into uh, preaching sections already, if you will. And, And they're the ones we're using, just simply. We just took it out of the ESV Bible. And if you look at that section, then you'll study that section, and you'll just spend your week, whatever else you want to do, study that section, maybe help answer those questions, and study that on your own. Get up in the morning, spend a little bit of time with the Lord, read the passage, 
ask questions of the passage, make some notes, do a little bit of study on your own in the chair so that you're getting the truth, you're kind of embedded in your soul, and you have a little bit of anticipation. And then when you come to church on Sunday morning and we're doing this expository exaltation and we're worshiping God and when we're humbling ourselves before the Word of God and when we're listening to the Word of God so that we can change in that stink, then we came prepared. It's a delightful thing to be a pastor. One of the reasons it's delightful is because you get to prepare and you get to be in the Word. And then you get to bring the Word. Well, you want that experience yourself so that you can study the Word in the chair. And then you come and you are worshiping God by humble, humbling yourself before the teaching of the Word of God. And you're listening to the teaching of the Word of God. Not just this is what it means, but rather how God is gifted pastors to actually take the word of God, teach it, and apply it to this church, to the, to, the shepherd, to the sheep that are under his care. God has gifted shepherds, called them and put them in place, put the sheep there, and the, and the shepherd prays and watches over the flock and listens and pays attention to what's needed and takes the Bible and explains it and applies it to that flock. Hey, Charles Stanley can't do that for you. You don't even know him. David Jeremiah can't do that for you. You don't know him. Right? These are good guys, but they, you don't, they can't do that for you. They don't know you. They're not praying for you. Your pastor's praying for you. And so you want to come, and you humble yourself, and you listen to the teaching of the Word of God, and you say, what is God? So here, here's a great way to take notes. Number one, write down, what's the big idea? And, and I'll just say the big idea here is God, you can change for the glory of God and for your own enduring good, and you should. It's kind of long, but that's it. And the short version is, change, will you? Change, change, right? Change. All right, so that's it. And I'm there. I got it first. I got it before you did, right? I'm like, I'm humble myself before God. Yes, God, yes. Well, you want me to change? I change. I, I need your help, but, but I'll be honest, and I'll admit when I'm wrong. I'll admit when I need you. I'll quickly admit when I need you. Would it, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if all God's people would quickly say, I will admit when I need you. I'll admit when I sin. I'll admit what I don't have and ought to have and what I have done and shouldn't have done. And I'll submit to you. And so then you have the first thing then is time alone in the chair. And the second thing is listening with your heart. And that is to be there in the word, in the row, if you will. And then the third thing is to get in a circle in order to, with an intent to obey. The circle would be like a small group. Now you might say, well, I don't know if I can do a small group. It's okay. It'd be great if you jump into one of our grow groups. That'd just be awesome. I challenge you to do that. I encourage you to do it. It doesn't work for everybody. I get that. You may, your circumstances may make it impossible or difficult for you to do that. And maybe it just doesn't, you're just not wired. There's a handful of people that are totally not wired to get in a small group. I challenge you to try anyway. But get in a Bible study, get in an ABF, get in a small group, have a prayer partner, go one-on-one. Call, all of my life, I've called men and I've gotten with men. And I've had breakfast with men. And I've listened and challenged them and they've challenged me. All of my life has been, and my kids, it might be that you take all your kids or some of your kids aside or a grown child or, or a young boy or a daughter and take them to breakfast every week, but you get face-to-face with somebody. So you see, this is how not to stink, and here's why. Okay, you're going to study ahead of time because you have an intent to find out what God wants and to do it, and then you hear a challenge from a, an anointed pastor that's been praying for you, that's been praying over that passage, and he's asking God to help give a message to the people, these people now here. And then, and, and then from there, you say, now I'm going to get with somebody else and I'm going to pray about that and talk about it. And basically, with a bent toward action, 
here's what we tend to do. We tend to just fill our brains full of stuff and then go, go around and argue with people or talk about what we know. That's just so lame. That stinks. No, what we want to do is we want to get our hearts full of the truth of God and then act in the simplest act of obedience. Just do something. Do something obedient from that God, let God, the Holy Spirit, inspire you to stop gossiping. Would you please stop gossiping? Let God, the Holy Spirit, inspire you to stop lying about people. Let God, the Holy Spirit, inspire you to get a handle on that gluttony, get a handle on that drunkenness, get a handle on that drug problem. God will help you. He can transform you. And one of the ways to do it is to get in the Word, listen to the preaching, and then have somebody that you talk with and say, now what are we going to do? Anyway, we can go into more detail. But let me just, tell, let me just close with, with a story that will help embed this idea. I go to a counseling session with the guy, and we're in this little cabin. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful part of the country. And we're in this cabin. There's going to be a counselor that comes and meets with us. So we're going to stay in the cabin a few days. And the counselor is going to come, and he's going to meet with us. And um, it's a beautiful place, and it's a beautiful cabin. There's food there and all of that. And so we're going to be there for a few days, and it's the winter of the year. And it's a little bit cold when we get in the cabin, which is great for sleeping. But then when you get up in the morning and it's time to sit for the counseling sessions, it's just cold. Okay, so we sit down for our first counseling session, and there's the counselor and me and the other guy. And we're just sitting there on the couch, and I'm thinking, there's this big fireplace right there. I mean, it's a huge fireplace. And there's like hardwood. You can tell it's seasoned hardwood. It's all stacked up right there. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, it's cold. I wish somebody would start a fire. But you ever notice this, like with men, I don't know if it's this way with girls, but with men it's like, but if I try to start a fire and it doesn't work, I'm not going to look very manly. Dude can't even start a fire, you know. So I don't volunteer to start a fire. The other guy, he's not volunteering to start a fire. He's just sitting there. Counselor guy, he's just doing his counseling thing. I'm just sitting there thinking, it'd be nice if somebody would start a fire here. So about an hour goes by, and it's a little chilly, right? About an hour goes by, and somebody says, we ought to start a fire. And we're like, yeah, but nobody actually does it. Finally, the counselor goes, you know, he's kind of the leader guy, and he goes, okay, we'll get this going. And he goes over, and he starts, tries to start this fire, and it doesn't work. It just, like, sputters, and it goes out. And he goes, maybe we could start a fire. And the other guy, he, he gets up, and he goes, well, here, let me try. Little do we know it, but this guy is like a closet pyromaniac, right? He's like, he's got this huge fire going. It's almost like he enjoyed that way too much. He got that fire just roaring, man. He got a big rip-roaring fire. We got to laughing about that. He goes, you've done this before. He goes, all the time, man. I go, why didn't you just start the fire? He's like, I just didn't want to, you know, I was a little embarrassed. I'm like, and if I could make fire like that, I would do it a lot. You know, that was something. And then there's that warmth. And then there's that fragrance. Hey, we got everything we need. You know, God hasn't left us short. He gave us his word. He gave us his spirit. He gave us each other. And we, we need to have, we need to not stink. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray your help that you would help us as we go away from this talk this morning to not talk about whether or not we liked the music, to not talk about whether or not we liked what the pastor wore or didn't wear, to not talk about who was there or who wasn't there, but God, please help us to look within our own souls and God to see what needs to be different. And how wonderful that you can transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.